Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, and something a little bit different for you in this episode. I thought it was worthwhile sharing a live webinar that we ran on Wednesday, the 8th of April. Now, that was with episode one of this podcast guest, Pete Wargent, who's an internationally recognized finance and real estate expert. So we covered everything around the economic impacts of the pandemic, what the likely impact would be for Australia over the long term, and of course took a deep dive in what's into what's happening in property and what's likely to be the case on the other side, whether it's a buying opportunity, what he sees happening. Now, we had a lot of questions from the audience and there were some heavy hitters in the audience as well, some great uh, industry professionals and buyers agents, so there were some great conversations throughout that. So here's something a little bit different the webinar recording with Pete Wargent on the 8th of April and I hope you enjoy. My name's Mike um, from MCG Quantity Surveyors and the host of the Gear for Growth Property Investing podcast and we're joined with Pete Wargent this evening talking about what you need to know about property investing right now. Thanks for joining me tonight Pete. G'day Mike, pleasure to be here. Good to see you and good to see the flowing locks, although they're tucked back. I'll have to dock a few points for that. Um, it's obviously, a, everyone says, unprecedented time. It is pretty unprecedented. Obviously, there was the Spanish flu, but I don't know. I think I was, I was at least in utero for that one. Um, but for anyone that, um, that, doesn't, know, that doesn't know Pete, um, he is, well, here's his bio here on the slide. So you've got... Um, Bachelor of Arts, History, Economics, Financial Fellow, Financial Services, Real Estate Agent, we won't hold that against you, obviously Qualified Property Investment Advisor. But the reason why I guess I wanted to, to have Pete and, and, and share him with, with my community is that he essentially retired at a very young age in his 30s, became financially free, he's a wealth coach, he's a, a very accomplished property investor and very sought after speaker um, both in Australia and internationally um, it's very difficult to watch television without him being on it um, and what we're going to talk about tonight is essentially the outlook for the Australian economy um, the outlook for the Australian real estate property market which I guess is the real focus of why we're here tonight and what is going to happen to property prices once this sort of pandemic gets a little bit under control obviously the curve is flattening it remains to see how we come out of that, but is there going to be a property price boom given the stimulus in the economy and the record low interest rates? Um, so after that, we uh, will go into a bit of a Q&A, so we'll probably do about half an hour and then take some, take some questions. But um, Pete, starting with the economy, what are the key indicators that you're following and what is the story telling you as at tonight? Well. Yeah, a lot of the, the real-time data, Mike, uh, well, a lot of it isn't real-time data. That's the, the problem. So a lot of stuff that gets reported relates to the month of February. So today we had housing finance, and then the other day we had international trade figures, but they're all historic. So they don't really tell us anything. I suppose the best real-time information at the moment is simply looking at the number of new confirmed cases of the coronavirus, because that tells us, uh, how well Australia is tracking on flattening the curve. I suppose the other stuff that is actually real time, well, auctions aren't really happening at the moment, so there's a bit of private treaty going on in property, 
Uh, but things like job advertisements get reported weekly and they've dropped off a cliff essentially over recent weeks. So clearly we're going into a recession and for Australia that'll be the first recession since 1991. So it's not something that a lot of younger Aussies are familiar with, uh, but most other countries find that this sort of thing happens every 10 or 12 years on average. So um, it's not unusual for an economy to go into recession, but the situation is unusual. So it is a bit different. Yeah, and I mean, it's a little bit of a badge of honour, wasn't it, that we were sort of spruiking the, the number of quarters that we've been through without a recession. But, but what economies in the world are going to avoid a recession or, or many of them perhaps even a depression at the moment? Well, yeah, so Australia's been fortunate. We've got a, an open economy. Free-floating currency has really helped because when global growth slows, normally Australia's dollar falls, and that really helps us to rebalance quickly. The other thing that's really helped Australia through the mining boom and beyond is the high level of immigration. Of course, that has now been effectively halted. Um, so we used to get a nice little boost from very high rates of population growth. Now, that may continue again, uh, but not in 2020. So uh, there's no escaping at this time around uh, recession for Australia. But if you look at uh, some of the numbers tumbling out of Europe, uh, same in Asia, same in the US, this is a global recession. So nobody to blame as such. It's just, um, it, this is a public health issue. So it's an environmental issue and it can't just be fixed by monetary policy and fiscal stimulus in the same way that a, a purely financial recession could. Yes, yeah, and I guess there's a lot of people that are more worried about the economic impacts than catching the virus themselves. Sure. And, and I mean, we, we may get through the virus relatively unscathed. Um, internationally speaking, of course, there's been deaths, but the, the economic fallout from this is, is, is likely to be pretty dire. There's been predictions, uh, predictions for, for unemployment to, to peak into the double digits around 11%. That's obviously one of, of, of a number of key drivers of, of property prices. You mentioned uh, migration as well. How, how much do you think these two components are going to, to put a dampener on property? Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, my view is we're heading into a downturn. Usually what happens when you get an external shock is that transactions are what fall first. Um, prices in the, in the immediate term aren't necessarily that heavily impacted. What generally happens, so if that shock uh, rolls into an economic shock and rising unemployment, then eventually prices would start to follow. So I guess it's just a question of, well, how long does the economy stay effectively closed for business? That, uh, I think you know, traditionally you'd say, looking back over 50 years of data, that there are essentially four things that could cause a real property crunch. One is rising borrowing costs, well, that's not going to happen. In fact, record low mortgage rates, as you pointed out. Yeah. Uh, dwelling oversupply, well, that was an issue for Australia two or three years ago, uh, now not so much. But as I mentioned, though, immigration has effectively been switched off. A uh, credit freeze, well, we haven't really got that in the sense that the Reserve Bank has put in place a funding facility, so credit should continue to flow, even if lending standards are tightened at the margin. The big one is unemployment. And at the moment, well, we came into this recession with unemployment around 5%. It was about 4 to 45 in Sydney and Melbourne. So it was pretty low. But if that starts going into the double digits, then eventually you'll start to see more forced sellers. And that's if there is a, a property crunch, that's what will trigger it. 
Yeah. So transaction volumes are the one thing that we're fairly confident about. They're going to fall. Uh, if there's limited demand because people are sitting on the fence, they're a little bit worried if now might be the right time to sell, is there going to be a balancing of supply and demand that would keep prices reasonable or are the people that are selling going to be in distress and they're going to be selling you know, under what potentially market value is because of the duress? Yeah, look, a bit of both, I guess. I mean, obviously the Reserve Bank uh, and the government has preempted this, so it's given people the option if they need to, uh, to take a six month mortgage holiday. So there's no free lunch, the interest will still get rolled up, but it does actually mean in, over the next six months, uh, there'll be far fewer forced sellers than otherwise would have been the case. But still, um, I think particularly some portfolio investors might be thinking, well, maybe I need to take some risk off, particularly if there's a risk of a pay cut, no bonus, uh, potentially a loss of a job. Uh, so there will be some people in that situation, even with the mortgage payment holiday. I think if you look at Britain, they're, they're a few weeks ahead of us on this journey. And they've seen buyer demand drop, what, 40% in one month. And they think maybe over the quarter, more like 60%. But the leading indicators here and in Britain suggest actually a lot of people aren't selling either because well, the market is a very thin market to try and sell into, but even just logistically, you can't have an open home, you can't have a public auction. Uh, there's even potential, at the moment, you can still have furniture removals done. And I guess you would know better than I about depreciation schedules and surveyors and so on. But I guess, you know, things like building and pests and um, you know, furniture removals become logistically difficult. Well, transactions, uh, they can still happen, but I mean, it's going to be a much smaller number. It is a little bit hard at the moment. I think Heron Todd White came and said that they're, I guess their cancellations are in the single digits. We're certainly finding some tenants are less likely to want to let us in at the moment for our inspections. But a lot of those are health workers that are actually not necessarily concerned about us, they're concerned about themselves. Um, before we jump into to, to another question, I just wanted to start a, a poll just to get a bit of a, a feeling of the room. If there's anything you particularly want to hear about, uh, let us know. Um, jump on the chat as well. Big hello to Kate Bakos, who's saying hi. We're actually got, we've actually got a webinar booked with Kate for two weeks' time. Um, so we'll share that link with, with all you guys. But contrast Australia's, uh, I guess, economic impact compared to the global impact. What do the global implications have for Australia? Obviously, China's going to emerge a little bit better out of this than the US uh, from, from first glance. It seems pretty obvious. How important is that for us being, you know, having China as a, as a major training partner? Uh, partner? And, and when we're modelling all of these, uh, all these health responses, we're, we're looking to overseas data. How appropriate is that both you know, from health economics. I know you're not an epidemiologist, but uh, you know, how do we how do we sort of contrast with what's happening here as opposed to the rest of the, the world? Yeah, I think uh, Kate would know more than me about virology and so on, the chemistry background. But uh, I, I think, uh, well, if you think back to the previous global uh, crisis and recession, Australia managed to coattail its way out of it, but effectively on the back of China's stimulus. So uh, now I think it's worth acknowledging the limitations of forecasting at the moment in this environment because it's so fluid, plus you're dealing with an exponential function. So at the moment, what, 1.4, 1.5 million cases globally, but if that's still increasing exponentially, I mean, 
very hard to forecast the range of outcomes. I don't know for sure, but it looks to me like obviously the US is falling into a deep recession. Unemployment could hit 20, 30 percent. But China, on the other hand, um, well, people don't really believe the dust that comes out of China at the best of times. So I guess there'll be some skepticism. But the early indicators suggest that uh, the factories are opening again, manufacturing starting to happen. And don't forget, China runs massive surpluses. So they're in a position, should they so wish, to well, to tip in trillions of dollars of stimulus into infrastructure programs. Uh, so if that were to happen, of course, demand for Australia's commodities will go through the roof. We've got the lowest Aussie dollar in about two decades. So it, it will be a huge income boost for Australia. So I guess that's the, the best case of the bull scenario is that China gets back to work, stimulates its economy, and Australia sort of grabs onto that. Uh, but obviously, we've got to get our own uh, coronavirus situation under control as well, which this week's figures have been immensely promising. But let's not jinx it, because obviously, there could be a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking at your, your blog today, um, we're into, I think, the the first period of, of double digit new case growth in a 24 hour period. So that's exciting. Kate's just made a note um, about uh, the mining economy with the Australian dollar being so cheap, as you mentioned. But I guess that coupled with uh, the, the Chinese economy chucking serious cash into rebooting what's going on with there, that's really how we're going to trade trade through this on the other side? Well, that's what we hope for. I suppose the Australia's economy in recent years, I mean, obviously, resources exports has been one of the big growth drivers. I suppose the problem is that a couple of the other key drivers being uh, tourism and international education or international students, uh, those sectors of the economy at the moment are effectively in lockdown. So I guess, yeah, we. I don't think it'll be a, a V-shaped recovery in the sense that we'll just get back to normal. So at this stage, it's difficult to see how the borders can be reopened. Unless, I mean, this is above my pay grade, but if there's a way in which all new entrants can be tested using a, a 15 minute test and quarantine where necessary, well, maybe that could happen. But at the moment, it doesn't seem likely that the borders will be open anytime soon. So yes, uh, domestically, we can get back to business and uh, mining can certainly pick up, but what happens in terms of new arrivals, international students, um, you know, and even uh, the construction of new apartments and so on, that's often very much driven by foreign buyers. So um, it could be, this year could be a real write-off in terms of economic growth. Hey, yeah, how much do you think we're going to see uh, foreign foreign investment in Australia in, in, the, current, in the current market? In terms of property, um, well, look, it's very early days. The the indicators seem to suggest that off-the-plan sales have really dried up. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I think immigration is obviously turned off for a while, but the the supply of new dwellings is also drying up. So a couple of years ago, we were really going full tilt, obviously, in terms of apartment construction, but that really seems to be uh, set to drop off. So there's a lot of conflicting factors. I suppose uh, being British, obviously, have have been through a few recessions in my time. And I suppose that that's one thing that always I come back to. And that's that when you're going through a recession, it never feels like fun. And it's pretty, it's pretty hard to imagine a more desolate landscape than Britain in Q1 2009. But then for, for apparently no reason, really, things just suddenly started getting better again. And 
in London, property prices then doubled. The rest of the country was a bit slower to get back on its feet. But I guess um, this is the thing with a free floating currency, control of your own interest rates and massive government and reserve bank stimulus is that eventually we'll come out the other side of this. And when we do, we'll have all of those factors as a tailwind. So um, we'll have the lowest mortgage rates we, we could have ever imagined, you know, lowest in a generation, people borrowing from 2.09% or you know, 2006, seven, we couldn't have even dreamt of that kind of scenario. So when we do come out the other side, uh, there's a lot of factors that, that can give us a push along, but whether that's a month away or six months or 12, uh, well, you, you would need Australia's premier forecaster to pick that. <laughs> You've got to be on the podium though, Peter. Are you <laughs> in the silver position at the moment? No, I mean, the thing is, you the, the limitations of forecasting, I mean, all you've got to do is go back to January and look what people were saying then. And if they weren't forecasting a, uh, a global pandemic and a, a, uh, an economic crunch and a recession globally, well, that, that tells you about the limitations of being able to predict the future. And in fact, the Reserve Bank itself, even in February, uh, was looking at unemployment drifting down towards 4.5%, then 4%. And uh, in the space of a month, um, even their 90% confidence interval for the next few years has just been blown out of the water. So the, the number of variables in predicting these things is, well, the range of outcomes is huge. Um, I guess you've just got to make a base case scenario and, and build your strategy around that. In taking the, the pulse of the room, 64% of people want to know what's going to happen to property prices. So you are a, a premier finance and real estate guru. Um, we've obviously got some comments from, from gurus in the, in the room as well. Kate's basically saying um, that there is uh, a big drop in online real estate listings. Um, so there's nothing coming onto the market. This, this stock shortage, is this likely to underplan, underpin um, the, the value? Uh, to decline? a certain extent, yeah. I think uh, it, these things are never uniform. But if you, if you remember back to, I mean, it feels like uh, an age ago, but if you remember back to the election uncertainty, and we just went into this situation where nobody wanted to list because prices were down, uh, activity, well, there's just so much uncertainty. But then when we came out the other side and we came through the election results and it's what in economics they call it a cobweb effect of essentially uh, the, the, the lower prices effectively dried up supply and then suddenly we had all these buyers and no stock. So I guess that's your bull case scenario is that listings dry up and Kate would be ahead of the curve on, than me on this. But uh, I imagine um, a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, probably missed my window to sell because um, it's such a thin market to try and sell into. And even logistically, if you can't have a damn open home, it's uh, not, not the best environment for selling property. I think mm. probably some sectors of the market might get hit harder. Um, I think you know, potentially, um, you know, this is no judgment, but just some of the lower socio-demographic areas, traditionally single salary households often have less buffer and that, that could drive more forced selling uh, because we have seen a lot of workers stood down in retail, uh, hospitality, tourism and so on. So um, even with the payment holidays and record low mortgage rates, there's still going to be some people who, who are just in a situation where they do need to sell. 
Are we talking, but, are we talking potentially some, some regional areas where people are maybe in more of the, the casual style employment or are you thinking sort of like the, the outer ring of, of major cities where there's a bit more casualisation of the workforce but the, yeah, the living expenses are, are quite high on a housing sort of point of view? Yeah, a bit of both. There are also certain parts of Australia, uh, such as in places like Cairns and so on, which are they're very much driven by retirees and tourism. And the tourism has effectively been stopped uh, in the short term. Uh, so that that's not a great scenario for people with Airbnbs or short-stay lets. Now, I think that's one of the things that we might well see, actually, is that A, we've got tenants potentially with payment issues, and B, there's going to be a lot of short-stay lets that actually, from a legal standpoint, they may even struggle to, to go ahead on a short-stay basis. So the rental market in the short term is probably going to see um, a flood of new supply. Um, but usually the pattern in a recession is rental vacancies initially go up and then they plunge because, um, well, effectively there's a shock and there's far fewer investors in the market. Um, and in fact, if uh, you remember back to 2007-9 in Sydney, there was a shock and it, all the investors were too scared to, to go in and then suddenly rents just leapt higher. Um, but that took a little time to flow through yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact timing of it, but I can remember people coming into work and saying, hang on, my rent's just gone up 25%, mainly yeah. in the eastern suburbs and so on. Yeah. And home, um, as Kate says. Yeah, yeah. And it, I, I think uh, within, with no immigration, obviously that's going to be some way in the future. But it, it, these things have a way of, flat, of uh, stabilising and evening themselves out. Um, and you'll see that new supply dries up as well. But... Uh, yeah, so, but as I say, I mean, the Reserve Bank is talking about uh, needing to build a bridge to the other side of this virus because eventually we will get there. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's about damage limitation over the coming months so that we can get things up and running again. Are there, are there sort of parts of the economy or the real estate market that you think are unlikely to bounce back from this to the full extent? Are there, I'm just sort of interested in who the winners and the losers might be. Obviously, um, Marty asked a question about commercial property the ones that are exposed in, in retail and uh, accommodation, obviously with the rent reductions being on a percentage of revenue with the, the new um, national cabinet announcements, there's going to be some pain there. What, what, what do you think there in terms of winners and losers? Yeah, I think um, commercial is more likely to take a bigger hit. Uh, that's what you would traditionally associate with recessions uh, because especially in countries with high rates of home ownership like Australia, like Britain, Usually people, they'll move heaven, heaven and earth to actually continue paying the mortgage. Um, so, you know, the family home is usually the very last thing that people would uh, sell unless they absolutely were forced into that situation. Uh, and I think uh, I was reading Simon Presley in the media today saying, you know, the one thing we all have in common is that we all need shelter, whether it's as yeah. a renter, as a buyer, whereas commercial real estate, well, not really. You can be a tenant or you can be an owner. But actually, traditional bricks and mortar retail has been struggling anyway uh, with the rise of Amazon and other factors. Plus, you, know, you can move regionally. Uh, but yeah, recessions tend to hit commercial real estate pretty hard because uh, obviously in the current environment, I've, I've got clients in this exact situation. Um, if people aren't getting the footfall to justify opening, uh, and you know, then, then there's a real issue. If people um, can't operate, well, how do they pay the rents? Uh, the landlord's come to the party and reduce rents. Uh, there's a lot of uh, haggling to be done there over the coming year. 
Um, I think residential will hold up better, but it's just, um, as you said, there, there might be some some sectors that do better than others. Yeah, and I'm just uh, wondering, a great point made by Luke Moroni, who's um, obviously a buyer's agent that you've done some, some Facebook Live with. He's saying, do you support your business or your home first? You, you mentioned there's a little bit of haggling. Obviously, there's a lot of government incentives. We've got the job keepers for business owners. Um, we've got the, the new start bonus for individuals. But, you know, it, it might become a question of, of what gets paid first. Is it the rents? Is it the mortgages? And how do you see all those negotiations playing out? Yeah, well, I suppose, um, and this is a fluid part of the economy as well, because we've, today we've seen three stimulus packages and there may yet be a fourth. Um, so, you know, look, it's, it's, it's a messy area because um, it, it very much varies depending on whether you're a sole trader, a casual worker, you know, a company, a business owner, so you might get GST refunds. Um, you know, if you're a stood down worker, you might get a wage subsidy. So, look, it, there's a lot of different moving parts there and nobody really knows the full impact. I think some people might fall through the cracks, uh, particularly uh, some of the sort of more casual workers who have been in positions less than 12 months or, yes. you know, people on visitor visas and so on. Uh, so there's bound to be some fallout. There's no getting away from that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, usually um, you know, people, they try to keep hold of their home for sure. Investment properties can be sold but um and i think um i think one of the things to remember is uh, people talk about the great depression and stuff like that well the the, the policy response to the great recession the recession was very different um to what you would see today in fact interest rates were actually increased over that period um at various points now uh, 2007-8-9 the, the recession was huge and it we saw quantitative easing on a widespread scale for the first time. Uh, but this time around, there's been no hanging around. We've gone straight to the biggest round of QE ever. Mm. Um, all around the world, interest rates have gone to zero. Governments are piling in with stimulus. So um, it, it, the liquidity that's being thrown into the system this time, A, it's come much quicker, and B, it's huge. So, um, yes, it's going to be a painful period. But on the other hand, at least the policy response is appropriate. and it should bring us out the other side in a much stronger position. Because uh, even in the GFC, it's easy to forget this, but you know, a lot of people weren't really sure you know, what would QE do? Would it cause hyperinflation? Blah, blah, blah. Well, no, it didn't. It, it increased asset prices, but it didn't didn't really lead to inflation. So uh, this time around, there's no holds barred. You know, it's gone QE in the States, the biggest package ever. Austra even Australia now going... You know, the, the RBA going down the QE route and buying bonds, targeting uh, lower interest rates across the curve right out to three years. So the, the, it's a much bigger response than we've ever seen before. So hopefully that will fire us out the other side. Yeah, and, and of course, in, in going back to the poll, people are very interested in what's on, on the other side. As, as much as possible, how, how easy is it to predict what the likely impact is on a macro sense for Australian property Prices. I know the media's, depending on on which comment from Louis Christopher, are saying it's potentially a thirty percent drop, or potentially we'll get to the other side and things will be okay. Values will hold up. How do we make sense of you know? There's some self interest from property people to say things are going to be all right. We'll get back to normal, and good assets are still good assets. And then there's the media doom and gloom of of thirty percent loss. 
where where do you sit and how do we navigate that yeah 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 well you've known me a long time mike my general world view is that things are rarely as bad or as good as they seem and when you when things are bad we have a tendency to think oh this is going to continue forever but the same holds when we go into a boom and then people start to think oh property is the only the only way to wealth and it's the only asset class to be in and and neither is true um you know the, the truth is nearly always somewhere in the middle uh, so i expect we'll see a, a big drop in transactions over the coming few months and don't forget a lot of the, the data is is lagging anyway uh, but um yeah and as i say very hard to predict on timing but i do think when we do come out the other side when don't forget we'll have the lowest interest rates in a generation uh mortgage rates from the low twos um you know maybe you know three percent for investors in some cases uh, we'll also have a uh, lower aussie dollar which you know tends to make our assets more attractive uh, to international buyers and it it brings more capital into the country plus the, the big one is that i mean the government is, is going to rack up hundreds of billions of dollars in deficits and debt um so that's effectively new money in the economy if you think about how economies grow um it, it can only really grow uh, with new money being injected now we went through a resources boom and then there was a, a housing construction boom and a lot of property investors and that was creating new debt and new money in the economy but now the government's stepping in and pumping in hundreds of billions of dollars so when we do come out the other side there'll be a lot of stimulus washing around so i guess uh, yeah the best case scenario is australia flattens the curve uh, really well over the next couple of weeks and we can actually start to look at opening some parts of the economy where i mean look at queensland there was like nine cases today yeah it's terrible for you know the, the handful of elderly people who've died but there will come a point where we have to have a soft open and actually start trading for business again and just trying to manage the spread of the virus while new treatments uh, are found yeah I'm going to take another pulse of, of the room just to sort of see what people's sentiment are. But for people that are jazzed up and they, they're saying, look, this could be a once in a generation opportunity and want to invest in property, where, where do you think the safe money is in, in investing in property right now? Well, yeah, interesting you say that because, as you know, we do a little bit of buyer's agency work and we do actually have clients still searching. And the interesting thing uh, because there are no open homes now, I mean, we're looking at uh, properties in New Farm and Tenerife up on the hill at Tenerife Hill and places like that in Brisbane where normally uh, an open home, well, go back to January, there would have been you and 60 other people. Now, potentially, you can buy with little competition. So I suppose, um, you know, people often talk about being contrarian investors, but in reality, most people just don't do it. They just follow the herd. Yeah. So... I guess that if, um, and I actually have pre-approval myself at the moment, alas, I don't have the budget to buy up on Tenerife Hill, but I guess that's where I'd be looking if I had the budget, is just to try and get into the best locations, the best suburbs possible, at a, at a very unusual point in the cycle where there isn't that much competition from buyers. Yeah, and I think um, probably, uh, I think we're looking at around about 16% of people are worried everyone else is a little bit, um, little bit more optimistic are, are there any areas where people should be really wary obviously we know that airbnb and short-term accommodation is going to be an issue so property investing in areas that have a high proportion of that is is, is is bad news but anywhere that 
that people should be really careful of? Yeah, look, I guess um, having been through a couple of recessions in my adult life, one of the things to, to bear in mind is that a recession is a period, it's just a period for property investors in particular to, to, to manage risk because there are elevated risks in terms of um, possibly your own income, but don't forget tenants might have an issue um, with paying their rents. Um, there are all sorts of unforeseen things that happen during recessions, you know, stock prices can crash, uh, the, the super can take a hit, but it's really just managing managing risk and managing your cash flows until we come out the other side. So especially for portfolio investors. Uh, and, you know, it's almost inevitable if you've got multiple properties, there's bound to be an issue somewhere across uh, the board, but you've just got to look at it on a portfolio basis and say, well, you know, if I, if I receive 10 or 20% less rent this year, well, disappointing, but you've just got to manage the risk and keep a buffer because one thing we do know from modern recessions is they don't go on forever. Um, you know, yes, they can drag on for a couple of quarters, but eventually things start humming again and then we'll come out the other side and you know, eventually we'll look back and say, oh, do you remember, you know, that, that period where things looked bleak, but you know, in, in hindsight, they tend to look like a blip, but it's just as you go through them, not much fun. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll go, we'll go to some, some questions now. Um, so if you've got a question for Pete, chuck it in the chat box. I'll do my best to, to, to get through to, to everyone. Um, if, uh, if, if Jack Henderson's tuning in, make sure he, he doesn't throw me any uh, smoke bombs. Don't tell me he's on the list. Um, I have seen some some heavy hitters. I've seen uh, Melinda ask a question. I think that's Melinda Jennison. I'm, I'm interested to see what her question's about. Um, so the the US issues, how that will impact Australia. Obviously, we're seeing uh, the cases in the US just really going crazy. I mean, if you if you look back at some of the the comments that Trump made in the beginning, he was sort of making fun of it as a bit of a hoax. Obviously, that's changed very, very drastically. How, how will those issues impact the, the US? I'm not sure if, if Kate's sort of thinking tourism or maybe more as an economic partner. Obviously, we've we've long held that they're very important for sort of circling around us and, and shooting any potential invaders with all their military hardware. But how important is the US to us? I think uh, the US is just important for the global economy. You know, if, you, if, the, yep. if the old phrase when I was growing up is if the US or if uncles Sam sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. I think that's still true to a large extent. In fact, if you think back to 2007, 2009, I mean, even the countries that dodged a recession, they still saw their stock markets hammered by 50% in some cases. So particularly for financial markets, things are much more interconnected than they used to be. Um, there, there used to be a feeling that, that maybe things moved to their own drum to a certain extent, but that's definitely not the case anymore. Mm. So US stocks go down 30%, everyone else goes down. That's just the way it is. And it's not just stocks, it's financial markets in general. I suppose the uh, the health issue is is tragic because um, you know, the, it may well be um, that you know, some of the less healthy parts of the states, you know, if the virus spreads widely, there can be some very high fatality rates. And um, But from an economic perspective, I mean, it's actually the, the numbers are so big in terms of the stimulus, it's hard to get your head around it. You know, the, the, the QE4 or QE5, I think I now call it. I mean, the, the numbers are just mind boggling. So the liquidity in the system is going to be just unprecedented. And uh, America, you know, historically betting against America has been a pretty 
has been a bad idea, as Buffett said. And yeah. um, the, the nature of the economy is it's massively competitive and they will come out the other side. But in the short term, uh, the, there could be some explosive unemployment figures because it's a highly uh, sort of casualized workforce in the States. And it's been, it's been their strength and their weakness in some ways. Um, so you could see unemployment at 20%. Who knows, it could go as high as 30 yeah. Uh, so they're, they're numbers that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Yeah, and the wealth gap is potentially likely to widen. It's it's already a bit of a concern, as you say, with with that sort of employment and and and, and a really inferior health system compared to us. So let, let's hope that um, they they do all right. With, with uh, Kate as well, also is on the ground noticing a, a dramatic reduction in listing activity. She's sort of wondering because there's not much on the market, there is obviously some demand out there. Is that going to underpin values? Yeah, I think to a certain extent. It generally depends. You know, usually for the types of areas where owner-occupiers want to want to live and buy, um, you know, that, those kind of areas, uh, the demand tends to be more stable. Investor markets can be a bit more volatile. So, you know, sort of high-rise apartment stock and things like that, CBD stock. But I think in the suburbs, if, there, if there's a dearth of stock, it does tend to underpin prices because I just don't think there's going to be that many forced sellers in, in most suburban areas at the moment because you know, if you if your mortgage rate, um, you, know, you can negotiate to, to pretty low levels, but it, you can go to interest only or you can simply stop paying the mortgage. So the number of forced sellers wouldn't be as high as otherwise would be the case. So I think to a certain extent that will be true. Yeah. And Scott has asked a, a really good question about landlord insurance. I think they've been pretty slow with their policies to say how they're going to cover landlords whose whose tenants can't pay. Obviously, we've got the eviction moratorium. Uh, do you have any insights into where the insurance company might land on this? Oh, look, it depends on the policy, I think, uh, because some policies have rental cover and some don't. So uh, I guess that would be a case by case basis. Um, because I think it's, some policies literally only cover contents and some landlord policies actually uh, cover uh, non-payments of rent. So I think it would be, uh, this is probably outside of my main area of expertise, Michael, but uh, I would suspect it comes down to the policy level. Yep, yep. And um, Luke Moroni has asked, inflation or hyperinflation in the future? Um, we saw in, in uh, post-war Germany, a loaf of bread was about a billion dollars. Um, any such future for, for Australia with inflation? Well, if you think back to 2007, 8, 9, I mean, some of the most highly respected um, historians, economists, uh, some of the, the big, um, big hitting um, Nobel Peace Prize winning thinkers, that there, it was a near universal belief that uh, printing money such as uh, was undertaken in the US was was bound to lead to high inflation. So we spent decades getting uh, inflation under control under Volcker and others, and then the the, the the feeling was we were going to undo all that good work by creating this massive inflation. And in fact, for years and years there was there was no inflation. It was completely um, completely wrong-footed. Almost everybody. So. But at the moment, everyone's an expert in hindsight. But if you went back to what people were saying in 2009, everybody believed we were heading for high inflation. So, yes, we got inflation in land values, in stock markets, uh, asset prices. But in terms of everyday living costs, it just didn't eventuate. Now, 
there are a few reasons why that might be the case, but my gut feel is it's probably to do with the expansion of um, you know, the, the labor force and um, the Asian markets and you know, a lot of stuff could be outsourced and there's more part-time work and more contract work and you know that so if for whatever the reason was we never got the inflation so I assume that we'll get the same again but in saying that people were completely wrong last time so uh, yeah and there, there could well be um, you know, people starting to question uh, the value of currency when you know, effectively reserve banks do create money out of thin air and people might start to you know to actually question the value you know if, if uh, you know the currency can be de debased so easily mm. yes and we might uh might see a spike in gold or something like so that normally what ldr i don't know but i assume <laughs> probably not based on what happened 10 years ago but uh never say never Melinda has asked your opinion on uh, what we might see if the COVID-19 uh, restrictions go beyond six months, um, the period where all the support seems to be in place. So we talk about a six-month moratorium on evictions, a six-month freeze on mortgage payments. What are we likely to see if we're actually still dealing with this in October, November? Yeah, well, the problem is that the government has done the right thing. It's gone in very hard on the stimulus. But... The, the amount that the government can can tip into the economy, they, they can't just continue, uh, you know, they, bigger and bigger deficits. Um, you know, they might seem like a good idea in the short term, but it's very hard to unwind big deficits. It can take 10, 15 years. So I don't think the government can afford things to go on for longer than that. And obviously, if we get to that point, then the economic fallout will be very large. So uh, because... The general idea at the moment is that businesses can hibernate, uh, but if you, if you leave the economy shut for six months, they'll effectively be in a coma. So I, I don't think uh, the governments, uh, they're trying to set the expectation at six months so they look good when we open up again. But I'll, I'll be much, uh, I'll be, I guess, base case, I think things will start to open up much sooner than we think because people won't have the tolerance for sitting at home for one thing, but actually, the, the economic cost will be too great. And you know, we've seen cases fall from 460 down to, what, 96 or something today. I think um, what we'll have to do is just open for business again and just hope that we can manage the number of cases with better treatments, more sanitising. Well, you've got your sanitizer there, Mike. Uh, but also oh, social distancing to the extent practicable. But I just don't think, or if we went beyond six months, it would be a disaster is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it'll happen. Yeah, well, that's 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 a good thing. And uh, hopefully the next time Definitely. we catch up for an interview, I'll be in Noosa with you in, in real person. Uh, it'll be weird uh, adjusting to the social distancing. I still think I'll I'll keep a metre and a half away. There'll be some psychological legacy. Um, if you're Kate, an elbow bump. <laughs> yeah, elbow bumps. Kate's asked uh, if there's any parallels between the May 18 recovery and this one. Um, I guess with... With May 18, we're, we're talking a little bit more um, of a, it's a different stimulus, you know, like it was it was a lending environment um, much more than than this one. But what, what parallels do you see? Yeah, I suppose in terms of the shock to confidence, there are similarities. But yeah, I suppose this, this recession is different from what we've seen uh, certainly in recent decades, because it's overwhelmingly, it's a public health issue. It's not it's not really a financial issue first and foremost. And 
until such time you can fix the health issue, you can't really fix the economy. So, uh, yeah, so in some ways similar in terms of, um, you know, shock to confidence, but in other ways very different. So, yeah, and it, it, I suppose that's the, the problem with trying to forecast this stuff is that you can't easily go back to previous episodes. All you can really do is look at countries that are further ahead on their journey. And it does seem to be the case that social distancing is, is doing the job. Um, but yeah, whether or not um, economies can get back to full uh, operation without um, a second wave coming, well, that remains to be seen. So uh, yeah, it, it, we might have a few false starts along the way and there might be certain sort of hot spots where things have to be restricted. So, I mean, uh, the, Scott Morrison has got a hell of a job to manage this um, and uh, his approval rating is through the roof so far. Mm. Um, Likewise, uh, Boris Johnson in Britain. Um, so they've, they've done pretty well so far, but it's uh, there's a lot of challenge and careful tinkering to get things up and running and open for business again. Yeah, I think historically you see people galvanising around the leadership in times of crisis, unless there's there's obvious incompetence. But I think there's more to it in in this. I think in in general, people uh, people are pretty happy about the response, despite. You know, a lot of people sort of demanding, you know, lock us down. I think they were the potentially the people that would, you know, maybe be able to 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 work from home on the on the government's salary. Most people that, you know, run a business wanted to keep operating. Um, with uh, with the question from Luke, are we are we expecting the banks uh, to 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 hike the rates in three to five years? I guess uh, that's that potentially could be a result of a boom. As we come out of this this uh, this lockdown, real estate potentially could could have a very good run, and and we're going to have to knock it on the head um, via RBA. Yeah, there may be. I think at the moment, so the Reserve Bank has effectively said, "Call us in three years." So basically, you can forget any move in the cash rate for three years. I mean, that's that's basically locked in. Yeah. Um, you know, I know people will start to talk about hikes and so on, but basically. Until there's progress towards full employment, which essentially is four and a half percent, then there's no there's going to be no move in the in the cash rate. There could, in theory, be some uh, inflation as a result of the lower dollar, but I, I just don't think high inflation in the short term is an issue. Yeah. Um, so, like, it, yeah, maybe in five years' time, it might be back on the agenda. But for the next three years, the cash rate will be 0.25 um, at the highest. Might even go lower yet. Um, and um, yeah, the, the Reserve Bank is even targeting the three-year bond yield. So that just um, from a mortgage lending point of view, that's an important funding benchmark. And that's going to be stuck at 0.25% for as long as the Reserve Bank targets the yield curve. So in terms of what that means for banks, well, they can lend at very, very low rate. So yeah. I think CBA cut the variable to 2.79 this week. And there, there are... Uh, products out there much lower so yeah i don't think in the next three years i don't think it's a risk but maybe over five years who knows we reference sqm research before and luke moroni's quoted them saying that the effects are likely to be bigger in sydney and melbourne of, of any of any price contraction i guess uh, i'm not sure exactly what sort of they reference as as the background for that but what what are your thoughts is there something fundamentally about sydney and melbourne that's going to expose them to more of a correction 
Uh, well, I suppose one of the things is that most of the cases today, I mean, the, the greatest number is actually in, in New South Wales, so predominantly Sydney. So that there might be some issues there with getting the economy back to full tilt because you know, you've got more people living in closer proximity and you know, the, more, more of the cases actually originated um, in, in Sydney because of the cruise ship debacle. There's a whole new uh, meaning to state of origin. Uh, but uh, so from that perspective, that, that could be an issue. But I think also, I mean, price growth, if you look at it, I mean, Sydney did 15% over the past 12 months, according to CoreLogic, and Melbourne wasn't far behind. So in theory, there could be quite a lot more froth there to, to get blown off in some areas. So, yeah, from that perspective, yes. Because if, if you look at markets like Adelaide and Brisbane and Perth, well, they weren't really doing big numbers anyway. So I guess probably they've been a bit more consistent in recent years. So, yep. yeah, from that point of view, perhaps uh, less downside. Yeah. Kate has, has asked, how much do you think we underestimate the proportion of active buyers when green shoots start to show? You you mentioned sort of um, the, the contrarian investor and how most people are following, following the herd. And I think that there are a lot of people that are going to wait for the green shoots before they jump in, potentially missing the, the actual real bargains. But do you think that's likely to happen once, once there is enough of a sort of an announcement effect that we will see a big run very quickly? Uh, yeah, the only thing that sort of, I think they will because, you know, people will be turned away from stocks right there wrongly because I think peak to trough, the stock market could get hammered. Um, and if, I mean, historically, low interest rates have always drawn buyers into property in Australia. And the, we've still got uh, the negative gearing, CGT discount. Now, they might be on the table again, by the way, um, when we have to actually look at how we're going to pay back all this deficit. Mm. Uh, and I think franking credit refunds will be on the table and so on. But I think, yeah, I think when people see light at the end of the tunnel, I think property will be the first place they go because uh, people will have been stunned out of stock markets. Banks will have suspended dividends potentially. Mm. Um, and you know, people have seen the market get crunched 35% in five weeks. So they might just be looking at it and go, well, bricks and mortar might be more appealing. Uh, but yeah, I suppose the, the one thing that sort of gives me pause as to the potential for a V-shaped recovery is that Australia's largely been sort of pumped up by high rates of immigration. And if that's not happening, well, maybe things might not be quite so red hot when we come back around. But, but don't forget what Kate mentioned. Uh, it's that cobweb effect again. If there's no stock and then suddenly you get a surge of buyers, then you can see that the rebound pretty sharply. Yeah, and a clearance rate's the best thing for us to be watching to see that that increase. Is, is that they've, the they've got a very good correlation? And the thing is, it's funny on the social media because you, you quote clearance rates and people immediately give you a volley of abuse. But you know, you, if you understand how to read those numbers and actually, if you take more than fifteen seconds to actually look at what you know what's going on instead of just taking the, the headline figure, then they are actually a pretty good read. And they've got a very good correlation with price movement. Uh, but people just, you know, they, they love a conspiracy theory. And they say, well, you know, what about the unreported? It's like, well, yeah, but, you know, go beyond the headline and actually read what's happening and look at some of the look at some of the properties that sold, some that didn't. So, yeah, auction clearance rates are good if you go beyond the, the raw numbers. Uh, some of the best leading indicators, you know, are often simply buyers, agents and mortgage brokers because that. You know, they're the people who deal with people firsthand 
in the market. It's not much use going to you know, the ABS figures because they'd like months, you know, so <laughs> by the time they'd moved, you'd missed everything. So even it, logic, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, to a certain extent, yes, because, you know, it takes time for figures to be reported through and settlements and so on. So your best reading is always on the ground, you know, speak to brokers, buyers, agents, even local real estate agents. And just when, when open homes are a thing again, you know, just get along to a few of those because that will tell you a lot more than uh, uh, what the talking heads are talking about. Kate's suggesting uh, days on markets are an important measure at the moment. Dan, Dan has asked your thoughts on the impact of Australia-wide salary reductions for one to two years. So if it takes some time for the economy to come out of this, I'm guessing there's going to be less dividends for, for investors, of course, but bis business owners, you know, bonuses and things like that um, might be off the table. There might be a reduction in in hours worked as we're sort of trying to navigate this. What, what are your thoughts on 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 us being in, I guess, a little bit of a deflated spending power environment. Yeah, to a certain extent. So, but borrowing capacity is increased by uh, low interest rates because the uh, APRA is, uh, as you remember, they they lifted the uh, the buffer, serviceability buffer, back in I can't remember now was it June or May or something, probably June. Um, so, borrowing capacity is actually increased by record low interest rates. But uh, if your income is lower. If dividends are lower and i've even noticed some borrowers now they're discounting bonuses and uh, they're not uh, sorry some lenders and they're not actually including as much rental income on this on the assumption that some tenants may not be able to pay so i think borrowing capacity might be increased by low interest rates but it will probably be countered by the fact that some people will have lower incomes lower bonuses potentially less rent uh, so yeah, net net, it probably it might not change that much, but um, yeah, we'll definitely have an impact. Uh, and same for self-employed people if, if business income is down. Just just on the rents uh, question, Janine has asked, how much do we think rents will drop in the major capital cities, and how long that might last? Yeah, I mean, I think in the short term, I think they will. Uh, I suppose the what the, the thing I just can't get my head around is when when can people actually move freely beyond the borders again? You know, because I guess if if that starts to happen, then the rental markets will be pretty buoyant. But if we don't have new arrivals into Australia, there's no short term arrivals, um, then the rental market is going to be soggy for as long as that goes on. So. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have short stay lets, Airbnbs. You know, they're going to be pumping those onto the market. Um, I think Sydney's already seen a surge of those. So, look, it's, it's hard to get a read on it. If immigration goes back to normal, in inverted commas, then uh, you'd probably see a rental shortage when we come out the other side. But if uh, people can't come into Australia, then uh, yeah, it's a different thing. You do generally see in a recession, though, uh, fewer, fewer home buyers and more renters. So that, that can actually tilt the equation back the other way. Yeah. And Marty's asked the question, I guess it's what what are we going to learn from from this exercise? Will the, the, the hurt and exposure to risk that property investors have faced during the, 
the crisis have an effect on the financial bu buffer that we carry in the future? We, we talked about having a buffer in the beginning on the, the, the podcast. Um, that's something that comes up all the time. Just make sure that you have a buffer to weather the storm or the exploded hot water system. Will, be, will people be a little bit hesitant to leverage themselves too highly after this event? Uh, they should, but history suggests that people have pretty short memories. Plus, th there's another thing as well, and that's that every cycle brings new entrants into the you know, new investors, new entrants. So a lot of people don't necessarily have experience of uh, downturns and recessions. So, uh, yeah, I think in the short term, yes, but probably if you fast forwarded a decade, no. Um, I think some things will change, though. I think there'll be less globalization, there'll be more focus on home country based manufacturing and production. I think China will emerge as a global uh, superpower, probably superseding America over the next five, 10 years. So uh, there'll be some things that are quite different on the other side. I think some of the stuff that's being banded around, there'll, there'll be more homeschooling, more working from home. I, I think some of that stuff, yeah, I, th I think the homeschooling thing has been overplayed. Uh, if uh, uh, our household is anything to go by anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate's just remarked that she thinks that we'll see a little bit more of a of a sea change, sort of tree change style um, demand, I guess you'd say, from, from our, our new uh, enthusiasm about working from home, at least our forced sort of enthusiasm for it. So it'd be interesting to see how that, how that plays out as well. So Pete, just to sort of sum up, you're, you're, you're basically sort of saying if we're, if we're talking about a, a reasonable time frame, so the cases are now into double digits nationally and you said nine in, in Queensland, if this is not lasting for six months or more, we've got these mortgage holidays. Melinda mentioned that people are going to do whatever they can to hold on to their home. If you can freeze your mortgage and you don't have to sell, uh, I wonder who is going to sell. So that should really hopefully underpin the values. And it's a bit like the SCOMO talk about the, the coma or the bridge to the other side. Does that provide the bridge that holds up the values and the fundamentals before this happened were positive? So we should start trending back up again? Yeah, look, I guess with all the disclaimers out, out of the road, I mean, bear in mind that nobody was forecasting a global pandemic even a few months ago. So, you know, with the, with the obvious disclaimer that nobody can predict the future. I I don't uh, see the base cases being that bad. I, I think there will be a, a five, 10% drawdown in prices. In some areas, it might be quite a lot more, but uh, I think if you're looking nationally, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was only say five or 10% and then we'll come out the other side uh, with all of that stimulus behind us. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's never a popular thing to say on social media, you get hammered because it's always, you know, but, but look at the stuff Australia's housing market has come through over the last few decades you know global financial crisis banking world commission there, there is something every year you know there was an election uh you know you go back to the eurozone crisis and then they you know, go back to the early 90s recession yeah so look prices are always up and down and there's always factors that can go against things but don't forget when we do come out the other side people will be borrowing money at two or three percent so I just don't think the downside is probably as great as what people fear. But with the caveat, you know, this is a global pandemic, so who really knows? Yeah, yeah. You know, until until we've got it under control, uh, 
the, the range of outcomes is pretty wide. Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable and, and, and no one's going to sue you based on, on, on that sort of advice, Pete. Thank you very much for... It's Mike's, uh, it's Mike's webinar, you can sue him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, uh, this is this webinar's run under a shell company, so <laughs> nothing for you in that one. Pete, thank you very much. We'll let you get back to, to, to lovely Noosa. And uh, thanks for sharing your wisdom. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for everyone that's participated. We'll make sure there's a recorded copy of this uh, as well. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, for jumping on board, and we'll see you next time. Pleasure. Thanks for joining. Cheers. Cheers, mate.